Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics podcast again. My name is Ahmed Hassan. Today, I'm speaking with a very interesting guest, Garrett Westwood. Garrett is an 11-year veteran of the intelligence community in the UK. He served in different roles in the military, as well as in the foreign service. And in the last two years, Garrett ran a intelligence team in a large pharmaceutical company as the head of global intelligence. Garrett, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ahmed. It's really, um, really good to be here. So, Garrett, in your own words, can you maybe give us a little bit of like how you got here, where you are today? By all means, and, and a big hello to all your listeners as well. So, I did um, a completely unrelated subject at university and ended up going into education. I was a music teacher as well as a teacher of some other subjects in kind of secondary schools and colleges for a good while in my 20s and then decided I wanted to do something a bit different. So in my late 20s, I decided to join the military and I was presented with a number of options. I ended up kind of, as you alluded to, working in, in security and intelligence within the military. And yeah, I got to do lots of interesting things, some more technical aspects of, of security and some more generalist. I then moved abroad overseas in 2017. I came out of the military and I did contract work for my government's foreign service. So I lived in Pakistan for two years. I lived in Afghanistan for nearly two years in a kind of a threat advisor role for one for one of a better phrase really so really interesting kind of cross government cross public sector roles you know your, your listeners will understand from previous podcasts there's varying amounts of detail any guest can go into but that was a really informative that was a really informative time and actually set me up perfectly for my current role which is in the private sector after 2020 i decided to to start to make a beeline for the exit from afghanistan and in January 2021, I eventually got offered a really unique, I wouldn't say unique, a really interesting uh, role with a large pharmaceutical company that was looking to build and then manage a kind of global security intelligence program. So not cyber, not business intelligence, not competitive, a what you'd say conventional J2 program, security intelligence. So I helped kind of bin, build that small team which it is now and you know we look at a variety of, of of issues across the intelligence and security space from the tactical to the strategic and as you mentioned i've been doing that now for nearly two years maybe maybe 20 months and and yeah really enjoying it and you know i, I didn't realize there was such a a huge community out there of, of private sector security and intelligence kind of teams both in-house and suppliers as well so it's been, it's been a really great two years, but as I said, oh, an awful lot to that 10, 11 years I did previous in, in, in the public sector. Thank you so much. That's very interesting. We haven't had anybody on yet from the corporate intelligence sector and maybe good also to mention for non-military people what J2 is. Oh yeah. Sorry, J2, that's military uh, vernacular, although it's pretty well understood throughout the public sector. So J2 is kind of security intelligence insight, whereas J3 is, is kind of operations and J1 is more kind of administrative human resources kind of stuff. That's, I'm probably doing it a huge disservice. So it's basically several kind of branches of the military going from, I think, one to nine. I've just explained, you know, three of them there. 
four is logistics and the J stands for joint. So if you're talking about working in a joint military environment, you'd use J. If he was in the Air Force, for example, your intelligence guy would be doing A2 for A as opposed to J2. It makes absolutely no sense in the corporate world whatsoever. It's just old habits die hard, <laughs> I'm afraid. So yeah, that's, and you can Google all the different branches of the military and, and I think US and UK are the same actually. So that's a bit of insight yeah. there for your listeners. Cheers for that. I think a lot will know, but it's just maybe good for, for people, particularly young people that are interested in this to, to understand how did you get into that and why did you make the switch? You said a little bit about you, you wanted to do something interesting or like, but why intelligence from that position from, from what you were doing? Really good question. And, you know, I, I always try to avoid saying exactly what I did in teaching before kind of my current vocation, because it does lend itself to this really hard question, <laughs> but I slipped up there and, and I mentioned it. So, um, and, and listen, it was, it was a really, it was a really great career to have. So I was teaching kind of the ages from 11 to 19. So that's kind of year in, in the UK, that's year seven to I guess year 13 or something like that. So high school and, and, and kind of college. Yeah. So how did I end up doing that? Well, I was pretty good at music as a youngster. And so, you know, that I wanted to be a professional musician and playing in an orchestra, but unfortunately in the UK, those positions are few and far between. So most people have to do some kind of teaching actually, unless you're very lucky. So I just went full on into classroom teaching because I was quite passionate about my subject and, and that's carried through actually. And, and the experience of being passionate about what is quite a complex subject. You know, we did, I taught music at quite an advanced level. So looking at quite advanced kind of compositions and all that kind of thing, a complex topic and being able to communicate it concisely and help folk who did not have knowledge of that, understand it. That is actually, well, that's kind of briefing, you know, in, in the security world. So sure. it, it, it helped massively. Why did I make this? Why did I make the switch? That's interesting. So yeah, like many people that join the military a little bit later in life, you know, off, many people join public service later in life, just have that itch for, to do something a bit different. I mean, I was already serving, you know, teaching it's government work, but I just wanted to do something a bit more exotic. So originally I, I wanted to be a pilot in the military, but by the time I got around to joining, I was probably a little bit too old to do that straight out the bat anyway. So I had to pick something else. And obviously I'm not going to say specifically what branch of the military I joined, but that kind of security intelligence area was offered to me as was more communications work and the military police as well. And uh, well, I, I had to reflect what I wanted to do because it was a big choice. And obviously it wasn't my first choice of flying around in a helicopter. So I went back to, you know, what, what, what really made me tick. And I mean, throughout my teaching career, I'd always try to bring current events into the classroom because ultimately especially when you're teaching kids up to the age of you know maybe 14 13 14 where they're not doing specific qualifications whether you're teaching art or music drama or, or, or some sciences actually or english literature you're actually teaching mm -hmm. people about life trying to make them better people better individuals yeah. and, and and grow up so i also used to bring international affairs not in any great detail but what was going on at the time into all my lessons mm -hmm. and i quite I, I kind of assumed that you know, security, intelligence, that kind of stuff would, would be, you know, would, would leverage that deep interest of world events in a way that the more technical parts of the military or, you know, the Royal Military Police wouldn't. So that's probably the most detail I've, I've kind of publicly alluded to in terms of 
why I did what I did. But it seemed the logical choice for me. I ended up then doing something really quite technical a couple of years later. But but there you go. And 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 it, listen, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Some you know, teaching is a great career, but it did scratch the itch that I had. Not only for doing something a bit exotic, but doing something genuinely insightful, really, really very interesting. It ticked a lot of boxes. So I'm glad I made the the change, albeit a little bit later than most. Very interesting. Do you think, uh, maybe this question is a little bit out there, but do you think having that love for technical, advanced compositions in music has helped you or prepared you maybe or opened your interest to do more technical things within intelligence? That's a, that's a really good question and not one that's been posed to me before. So certainly I've, you know, I've, I've got a love of data and I, I've done a lot of data, kind of deep data work, uh, do my public sector time. I'd say there's a realistic possibility they're connected. You know, some of the, some, some of the great thinkers of our time, be they public intellectuals or former intelligence officers, you know, have had a background in music and, you know, just the same as somebody with an aptitude of languages, maybe has an aptitude for that sort of thinking. I wouldn't say there's a direct correlation, but certainly actually you know, analyzing, you know, a detailed score, for example, a Mahler symphony where you have may have 20, 30 lines of music vertically and, you know, several hundred pages horizontally and trying to make sense of that. I think that might open a part of your brain or stimulate a part of one's brain that would be stimulated in trying to make links through data analysis, for example, or network analysis. Yeah, I would think so, because you hear always that people that really enjoy music at that level, almost always are, they like math, right? So it's almost like mathematical and physics and those overlaps, right? So that's why I thought I, I'd ask. So you joined the government, you spent a good amount of time in the military. W what do you say is the, maybe not the biggest, but most valuable lessons you've learned? that you, that you can implement now in your work during your time in the military? That is a, that's a really good question. Okay. So there's some, there's some kind of direct lessons and indirect lessons. So I guess, right, I'll pass this out. You can't, I can't really say it in a sentence, but delivering to the customer only what they need to know is, is a big lesson. So, you know, I, I did some counterterrorism stuff out, out overseas with, with, with some kind of highly specialist military units is actually kind of in Iraq. And these military units were quite notorious for being quite hard hitting, you know, cut the, the, the BS and, and, and really quite fast paced units. And as such, the minute, you know, one diverted off onto any information that wasn't in any way, you know, useful or directly linked to the objective, you'd get shot down in flames. Like embarrassingly shot down in flames. And I've had that, I had that in government too, you know, in Pakistan, we had a monthly meeting where all the heads of the embassies were, were of the embassy were, were sat around a table and it was led by the deputy high commissioner. And I had to give an update on what was going on across the country. And Pakistan's a very big country with lots of complex issues, be they terrorism, civil unrest, climate events, as we've seen recently politics and you know the deputy ambassador really what deputy high commissioner excuse me really wanted probably no more than four to five minutes if it wasn't directly related in some way to the intelligence question which was 
what's going on that could impact, you know, the UK government's operations in Pakistan. If I, if I wasn't bang on the money and bang relevant, I'd get shot down in front of all these heads, you know, of, of the various departments within the High Commission. So that's one vital lesson. Be relevant and concise. There you go. That's, we, could, we can call that lesson be relevant and concise and accurate. Or accuracy, brevity and clarity, as we'd say, you know, the ABCs. That's a huge one. The other one is, is kind of linked to that. It's in terms of report writing, making it absolutely clear to the customer what question is being answered. So I see a lot of reports from suppliers and vendors these days that are just block text, which is fine. And they're very high quality writing, you know, really high quality, often written by experts. However, wouldn't pass muster in a military report for several reasons or, or government report. And, and that is, you know, addressing the, the question, the essay question, you could call it, or the intelligence question within your writing and making it completely obvious what the conclusions are. So things such as writing a bottom line up front or an executive summary. We was always told, you know, in the military, right, if you're, you're briefing a, a commander, he could be a colonel, he could be a general. And it's a you know realistic possibility that he may have to go or she may have to go after three minutes. Whether you're briefing or whether they have a report in front of them, can you sum up the main points as in the answer to the question within those first three minutes or within that first paragraph? So that if they had to go after two, three minutes, the most pertinent points of the brief would be, you know, in their head and, and, and they didn't stand. Again, that's kind of linked to accuracy, brevity and clarity. And then I guess you know, the soft skills are, are timekeeping prioritization as well as kind of finding, finding that balance between, you know, working all night and prioritizing, that's prioritizing exactly what you need to do that day. So that's prioritization, isn't it? And timekeeping really in, in Iraq, you, one could have worked 24 hours a day, you know, if they were 25 hours in a day, one could have worked that as well. And there is a line between getting enough done and being operationally effective and everyone's line is different. Everyone's threshold is different. So, you know, finding my own personal threshold for that, what fit for me, I, I did on operations within the military and then kind of refined that when I was certainly doing COVID, I was kind of the only threat advisor, threat analyst in the embassy in, 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 in Afghanistan because we were down to skeleton staff, so, uh, you know, so I had to really prioritize then because I could have worked all day, same, you know. Same as the Iraq example, it could have worked all day, but then, you know, you, you've become less operationally effective as one becomes burnt out. So, and burnout is a big topic these days, isn't it? So I think, you know, that, that was a, that was a big lesson for me or, or, or discovery, I should say for me. So how do you make sure that, that you don't burn out? How do you find that balance? I know it's, it's a very difficult one. How do you remain healthy and, and operational and, and effective? Good question. And I'll try to kind of form an answer off the cuff here, because it's something you do rather than what you think about. But mm -hmm. I, I guess there's a, there's a two or three ways that go about this. First of all, the obvious one, prioritization. You need to understand the strategic or operational objectives of your boss, your commander, your team leader, in order to understand exactly, you know, how you prioritize your own work. So understanding the team's priorities or the company's priorities and how your work, the analyst work contributes to that. Only then can you really think, right, okay, what, what's the most important part of my work? What absolutely needs to be done? 
so prioritizing it and as i said you need to know your your formation's priorities before being able to effectively prioritize your own work obviously there's deadlines but even deadlines can be pushed depending on the deadline some deadlines can't so again that's about understanding the kind of strategic and, and operational aims of your particular team, whether it be in a company on, or, or in government or in the military. Then I think using time effectively, and I'm still still getting to grips with this. I'm in, in my 40s now, but I'm still, still getting to grips with it. But I think blocking off shorter amounts of time for in, intense concentration is probably, the giving yourself, probably better than giving yourself a long time with you know, and interruptions. Some of your listeners might have heard my Microsoft Teams kind of bell go off just then. That's a typical example of what not to do. Set yourself a big amount of time to do things, but have everything open, right? I'm, I'm so guilty of that. And actually the the analyst that, that works with me at the moment, you know, occasionally when I give them tasking, they will just turn everything off apart from the, the tools that they need in order to do the job and have that period of intense concentration. Now you can't do intense concentration for hours. So that's why I say, you know, that small amount of time. And you could probably, in terms of analytical work, especially if you're looking at data, especially if you're looking at spreadsheets or, or you're looking at large bodies of text and trying to analyze and interpret that. I think that small period of really quite concentrated time, far more efficient. So you've got prioritization, you've got then, you've got your priorities, you know, parking, boxing those times. And I think it's called time boxing or something like that. Anyway, it is a thing. And then lists, lists sound very obvious, but an obsession with lists. So, you know, whether it be color coding, whatever you want to do, but you know, when I, when I go to bed at night or when I wake up in the morning, I have everything I have to do, both my day job and the other things I do in my head all the time. And that becomes overwhelming. And when you put it down on paper, on one note, on a sticky note, however you want to do it, often that helps you quantify it. And it's less than you think when it's going around your head and it helps you with prioritization as well. And I, I find, I find it works. So that, that isn't really, you know, innovative. I don't think I'd sell a management book on those three things, you know, boxing off time, making lists and prioritizing, but those really basic facets. Well, yeah, I, I might write one. There you go. <laughs> no, that's, that's really good. I think you hit the nail on the head there because I think for me personally and how we run our teams, it is, they sometimes complain that a lot of the work is regimented, right? That we use all these tools to, to keep up and to have like a, as one of my old professors used to say, an intellectual log of your work, but it definitely helps. And as you said, writing things down gives your mind also a bit of ease that you don't have to remember it. When people say, oh, help me remember this or help me remember that, well, just write it down, right? And go through that list and, and, and tick boxes. I mean, it sounds very easy thing to do, but you'd be surprised how people complicate it and it's not necessary. So now you're working in corporate intelligence. Can you explain how does your day look? That's a really good question. Thank you. Okay. So it would be a cop out to say no day looks the same, which is a cliched answer. And, and it would be largely true. However, I can tell you my team's kind of priorities and then roughly kind of quantify for you how those stack up and maybe how a week looks. So I'm in a pharmaceutical company and I've designed 
my intelligence team basically around two distinct work sets. One of which is, I'd say, global risk, one of which is support to investigations. So we have a function that does kind of your traditional global risk reporting. And this could be, you know, a weekly report of what issues may affect our business globally in the coming week. It could be a flash report on, say, for example, a security incident at an airport that might be closing it that could have effects on supply chain. It, it could be a more strategic report on, for example, global unrest over the coming six months and how that may impact my company's operations. And that global risk part of our offering is distinctly categorized into things like travel security, supply chain security, it could be facility security, and we have strategic operational and tactical facets to that. So for example, we work very closely with the global security operations center. So making sure, you know, we have all our hundreds of offices correctly geolocated with the right emails and phone numbers to our operations center can warn the appropriate folks when there's an incoming hurricane or there's a protest. So that tactical stuff. And then, as I said, the operational, we know we kind of do weekly reporting. We look at global issues that may affect us and, and, and travel as well. And that's where understanding the business is absolutely crucial. Okay. Because we've got a very small team. We can't afford to just report on something if it isn't going to affect our operations. So if there's a bombing in a city in South Asia, that's awful. But if there aren't any direct risks to our immediate operations, for example, if there might be a security cordon put up around the, the site and that might affect our travelers into and out of that city, because that's a key route, we would report on that. But if it's, you know, just a, a, an incident versus for example, a, a transportation strike in another country, which will affect our supply chain, we have to make the call, which to report on. So that global risk side of it, just a tangent is also not just about reporting what's going on, but knowing our business, knowing our stakeholders, and then translating the you know, huge wealth of information intelligence we get into concise, relevant reports for our stakeholders. So that that's where an in-house team differs to, for example, a corporate intelligence supplier. We have to get the amount of data that we get, especially because we're a global team, we have a plethora of, of reports, and we have to make sure we pick the right ones that are relevant and make the incident relevant to our operations and, and the effect they, upon which they have. So that's one half of our offering. And the other half is then support to investigations. So most pharma companies have an investigations team and they largely investigate a legal trade. So we don't do internal investigations. That's not in our remit. So for example, looking at counterfeiters of of medicines that we supply or illegally diverted medicines. That is, for example, we send a medicine and it's cleared to be provided in one country, but they divert it to another country, maybe because they make some money off of it. That's got kind of both patient safety and commercial implications to it. And we also help with, I guess, thefts as well, although that lies slightly outside my team. For that, what do we do? Well, we're not the chief investigators, that's a separate team, but in the intelligence team, we provide kind of open source intelligence packages, reports on entities of interest. So for example, if we notice that there is a company that is exporting our products, you know, from a particular country and they're doing so illegally and we identify it as such, we might do some digging on that company and, you know, glean actionable intelligence from our work. So where are they, what are they doing, who are the directors, you know, basically 
gain enough information so we can pass that to a regulatory authority or a law enforcement authority. Uh, I guess in government, they'd be called target packs. We don't call them somewhat provocative terminology, but they, yeah, we do kind of entity investigations into, into those folks who are attempting to illegally trade our products and we provide that support. We also provide some data analytics support as well. And, you know, on, on the global risk side, we do things such as global country risk annual reports. So it's, it's a huge gamut. Today, for example, we are producing a weekly look ahead report. So my analyst is busy doing that for each region, looking at not only what's what's kind of emerging in the various regions over the next week or two, but what of the situations that are emerging that will directly affect us. So that's kind of a whole day job. I, you know, I have a task meeting in the morning with my analyst. We talk about kind of what's going on around the world. We might have a briefing with one of our vendors. We then talk about what's relevant. They then go off and do that. Today, I've been doing quite a lot of stakeholder management, also tracking the readership of our products. Later on, I, I will edit that report and QC it. But I mean, every day could be completely different. So, you know, I could be, because I'm in more managerial role, uh, liaising with my suppliers. It could be briefing other parts of, of the business, or it could be, you know, procuring or organizing the procurement of third-party suppliers that can help us achieve our goals. At the analyst level, it's very much product dependent. So, you know, we have a suite of intelligence products on the global risk side, and we also have our, you know, our entity investigations on the, on the investigation side and the battle rhythm and the tempo of work for the analyst really depends on the requirements there, you know, and, and I think in any, in most corporate security intelligence teams, you have routine requirements and your battle rhythm, your schedule is often molded around that. So it's one day a week that it's a look ahead week for my analysts. So that's it's kind of molded around that, right? But it's it's a really interesting sector. And and if you know if you're thinking of we'll probably get onto this, but if you're thinking of going into that corporate security sector, fun you in the public sector, maybe you in the military, it, it can it can be as interesting. It really can be. And and, and especially if you go into a, a big company with an in-house team. Often the teams are relatively small. There are exceptions notably in the US, but often the teams are quite small. And as such, there is so much variety as well, which is what I found in this job. You know, I, I mean, at the beginning of it, I helped build a case management program. So I was just inundated with spreadsheets and pivot tables, you know, every, every day. Earlier in the year, we were doing an operation whereby we were trying to crack a, a global exporting network. So there's lots of interaction with law enforcement in that. So... Ahmed, it, it does vary, but I'd say, yeah, there are routine requirements that every team must meet. And often your what you do day to day is shaped around those routine requirements. So I hope that kind of answers it in a way. Absolutely. Um, what tools do you guys use? And I think for a lot of analysts, that's, that's maybe good to know. So on the global risk side, I can't really tell you exactly what vendors we use because it's contractual things, but you'll find a lot of in-house teams have suppliers that provide kind of global risk intelligence to varying degrees. They might also supply personnel. They might also supply kind of mitigation advice. There, there are a plethora of companies out there and obviously a Obviously, I'm not, I'm not really clear to say exactly what ones we use. And then, of course, there's kind of the, 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 the open sources. So BBC Monitoring, which, you know, isn't completely free to everyone, but you, you, there are ways to get an account. And in the UK, we have the, the, the likes of Rusi. We find ACLED really good for the, the conflict, the conflict kind of stuff. We also find 
Crisis Watch and Crisis 24, both really good resources, both of which, you know, you can pay for to get enhanced subscriptions, but you, they can be offered for free as well. On the kind of, kind of global risk, country risk side of it, you know, the the foreign office, UK foreign office, travel advice, the OSAC, which is kind of the US equivalent in the CIA World Factbook, again, all free all out there to use. The UN also have some really good data that, that you can use, you know, and, and they have various data feeds in various agencies as well. But the UN, UNODC in particular, have really good, has really good, you know, security, security information lately as well with Ukraine. I've been looking at for the, the Institute for the Study of War, which is really good. And the Long War Journal, I use that quite a lot in Afghanistan. So that's kind of just a smattering of, I'd say, operation and strategic vendors and resources, none of which I'm endorsing, but all of which are available. We also then have kind of more tactical capabilities. Our Global Security Operations Center has capabilities that can kind of pinpoint social media posts and incidents occurring on a map and then communicate those out. I think the big players are so few and far between. There's so many folks that are trying to do it. I'd be probably disadvantaging one to mention the other, but there are there are loads out there, you know, that, 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 that vary in cost, vary in quality. And I'd say on that side of it, the global risk side of it, a fused approach is best because there isn't one vendor that does absolutely everything. That's why many exist. That's, that's precisely why many exist, because not one does absolutely everything, whether you're talking tactical or operational strategic. So on the open source intelligence kind of investigation side of it, we use link analysis software. There's lots of link analysis software out there. There's Multigo, which is a great open source tool that you can actually kind of attach several different data feeds into Multigo via an API platform. So we use a link analysis software that, that also has open source data feeds behind it. But then we use kind of traditional open source intelligence, right? So we have you know, several start me pages that we've managed to pick up from training courses and, and LinkedIn posts and, and Twitter posts. The tools for that change all of the time. So I'd say there are lots of tools out there. Get on, get on social media, because if I say a tool, it could, that tool could be defunct by tomorrow when this podcast go out or next, next week when this podcast is published. So I would definitely say follow some awesome groups on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you'll get an idea of some tools to use and, and if if you're lucky you might get a start me page that you can use i definitely think again on that side of it there's no silver bullets our link analysis software is excellent but we often have to accompany it with traditional open source browser-based open source intelligence and there are you know several vendors then out there that will kind of do a bit of both um that can curate and scrape things like the dark web you know and, and that can look at social media across the piece, do the translation, categorize it into what, whichever Boolean strings you want. There are loads of them out there. And again, any other vendors that I've encountered not mentioned there, I'll probably cease to be on their Christmas card list, but honestly, there are so many, but those are the sorts of things that we use and other multinationals use to get curated insight that they can then further kind of wrap up for their internal stakeholders. Thank you so much. I think that's very valuable because one of the questions that I always get from young people is what do I learn? What software do I buy or uh, what skill set do I focus on? I think we, we will come, we'll come to that uh, in a bit, but I, one thing I wanted to ask you, particularly since you're in, in a team within pharmaceuticals, 
how did well how did COVID affect your team and 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 all the misinformation and how did you guys kind of like deal with that? Okay, that's a really good question. And I was actually employed kind of during that pandemic, right? So the first year of the pandemic, I was in Afghanistan. And then halfway through it, middle of 2021, I was employed by my current company. So it had a direct effect in that I talked about one half of my team that aids our invest investigations colleagues. We had a lot of vaccine-related scams, fraud, I don't know what you call it, vaccine-related cases come into us that took up a lot of our bandwidth, really, if I'm honest, because my, my company is a company in some way linked to the vaccine, right? So it had a direct effect on our work. Also, in order to detect and, and investigate illegal trade, we have to have people out there that are willing to contact us. We don't have, you know, contractors that go out and look for this stuff, but there needs to be kind of that market surveillance that goes on in any product. And then, you know, as soon as the market picks something up, which isn't quite right, they would come back to the mothership and, and report it. That people weren't out there, you know, so because a lot of folks were locked down, it affected our ability to see things. In the mis and disinformation space, so didn't doesn't really affect global risk. Didn't really affect global risk because, as I said, we're one removed. So in an in-house team, you'd have suppliers that would curate and actually cancel out the noise and hopefully feed you as an in-house team good insight, good information, clean information. However, where it did have an effect was, of course, individual security, per, personal security, particularly executive protection, actually. So... Given that our company is, is one linked with the vaccine, you know, we had our, some of our executives mentioned online. We had to monitor very carefully, you know, some of these more extremist social media groups and posts that would do things like call for an assassination of a health executive or a pharmaceutical executive across the piece. And, and that's still happening, especially, especially in the US, I think, but elsewhere as well. We had the activism protests here, you know, the anti-vax stuff here. We even had vaccine equity. So not anti-vax, but give the vaccine to everyone, those kind of movements as well. And with that comes the threat of protest, obviously. So whilst, you know, through the through hindsight, we've seen actually a lot of the protest activities being directed towards government. At the time, we had to prepare for potential protest activity at our sites which meant we had to kind of prepare mitigations advice and, and get that advice out. We had to, you know, monitor it somehow. So it I think on the global risk side, in terms of activism, executive protection, personal security, and on the investigation side of illegal trade, it took up an awful lot of bandwidth and squeezed everything out. And it's only this year that we've been able, able to kind of clear our eyes a little bit and look at what BAU, business as usual, looks like be that you know the counterfeiting of oncology products or war that could affect our supply chain on the other side of it so it it did have it did have quite a big effect if i'm honest yeah interesting i think what i heard you talk about your experience one thing that i'm not exactly sure what the timeline is but and maybe it's a little bit outside of what we were talking about but what was your experience like and and how did you viewed the the afghan pullout how did you look at that since you have experience there? Well, it was, I've got to be 
very careful what I say here. <laughs> right, so the collapse of Afghanistan itself to the Taliban was a very emotional time. For a lot of us who'd spent time there, be they in the military or as I was, a civilian contractor, diplomat, you know, and, and actually on the embassy, one encounters all three of those. And, and obviously, if you live in Afghanistan, especially if you're, you know, a a national of one of the countries in NATO that was present there, we a Brit in my case, I'd have a lot of interaction with the military as, as well as, you know, our, our foreign service colleagues. So with that context, it was really alarming to see, you know, even seeing pictures of my, where I lived, literally where I lived in Afghanistan in my small kind of ISO container next to the British embassy, even seeing that on Taliban Twitter posts, seeing our embassy, the roads that I used to walk down or travel to and from NATO, you know, on very bizarre so the impact of it as it happened because obviously i'd left by january that year it happened in the august the impact was very personal there was people out there at the time that had to get evacuated that i knew i was actually speaking to a close protection officer at, at a western embassy the night before it happened and he actually said right i've got to go you know they got they got the call that the taliban were at a particular city gate and it was probably time for them to decamp to the to the airport very raw, very real. And I don't know, I, I don't normally post on social media kind of personal things, to be honest, but I, I put a post on LinkedIn, I think it was, garnered quite a bit of attention. I I was I was quite deeply affected by that, to be honest. And, and I know there's folks that have spent a lot more time there or invested a lot more blood and treasure there as well that will be more affected than, than, than I was. You know, I, I saw that, I saw it coming. Many people saw it coming, not at the speed in which it happened. I was monitoring the Taliban. That was my job to monitor, you know, Haqqani Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, not from a strategic insight point of view, but from a, a, a tactical and operational risk point of view. So to that end, you know, I, I, I got various open and very closed information feeds and I was able to see what was going on. And like many on the ground, many of us on the ground could see that it was coming and it it didn't surprise me. It shocked me. You know, the the speed the speed shocked me a bit, but that all the indicators were there. And this is a separate podcast altogether, I guess, isn't it? But when you know we saw on the 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 outlying A and DSF folks put their arms down and defect, and the Taliban starting to from you know from what we saw even in the open source is starting to populate areas around cities and you know major center they even i think they they went into kandahar and tried to have a pop at kandahar during 2020 and they got rebuffed mainly by kind of us-aided air strikes i think but it was reasonably obvious that they were looking to eventually you know go into these population centers that that they were surrounding and the hope was that they would go into the population centers and work with the Afghan government that was installed there at the time, and they would work with the existing institutions. I think that was the hope. What we saw didn't really substantiate that hope to any great degree, but let's just say I think there was hope at various levels right up to the end. I don't think hope is a good platform for policy decisions, but I was just an advisor there at the time and far, far down the chain. So shocked, not surprised. I guess 
that a, a gas that many weren't prepared and a gas at the kind of ground rush at the end. I mean, even if you think it's going to be six months before, you know, anything substantial really happens or uh, uh, six months before deterioration gets to a critical point rather than six weeks, I think you'd still prepare. So listen, the, the guys that, that deployed there, you know, and British, US military and other nationals as well did a brilliant job. Everyone that was involved in the evacuation and getting getting uh, our staff out there and, and, and our Afghan colleagues out there deserves the utmost plaudits. And, you know, that what grips me is that there's still folks out there. And I think any, everyone who's been there in whatever capacity, civilian, contractor, military, all of the above, everyone who's been there will think, you know, what, what could I have done differently? Especially if you're there in the final years, you know, peace deal onwards, what could I have done differently? How could this have ended differently? And it's, it's a pretty weird feeling, but then you, you know, you take a step back and look at hundreds of years of history and you think, well, you know, why, why am I, why am I even shocked, let alone surprised? I rambled a bit there, Ahmed, but I hope, I hope that kind no, of covered off my feelings. It was, yeah, it was really good actually. And because you, you hear a lot of rhetoric, but it's good to, to hear it a bit more coherent from somebody like yourself. I, I just looked at the clock and it's time has flown and I have still so many questions, but one thing that I wanted to ask you was, and you, you alluded a little bit already to it, but if you had to give advice to the young professionals, the students, or even people that, that are in different careers and want to make a switch like you did, for example, what advice would you give them? Okay. So what if folks are looking to go into, you know, the public sector government or, or into corporate intelligence all, or all of the above. Right. So there's lots and lots of things I could say, depending what you want to go into. And you're learning a language is always great. Having been technologically very savvy is awesome. There's, you know, some great, I say cyber and inverted commas qualifications out there, like the CompTIA Security Plus, that is just good to have because these days, even if you're not in a cyber role, you know, having an appreciation of, of IT and, and the cyber landscape is, is prudent, but hey, some people, you know, that's, that's not an essential. I'd say be very interested in the world around you. That's, that's going from the kind of precise to really quite vague and take a deep interest in international affairs. I mean, the corporate, right? So corporate intelligence or, or kind of public sector, the security landscape, job landscape is wide. And you, you know, it goes from investigations, due diligence, all the way to kind of global risk. And it's, uh, it, and, and it's hard to make a decision what you want to go for unless you know. And, and actually for a young professional, you want to be able to put your net, re, your net really wide. So you want to, one wants to be able to do, you know, a, a CV, a resume one minute for corporate intelligence uh, and the next minute for a global risk, you know, embed position or global security operations center position. So what are the things that unite them? Get on an OSINT course, right? Because actually whether you're doing global risk or whether you're doing kind of investigations, a good appreciation of how to do open source intelligence gathering, the tools out there is really great. Okay. So get on, there's lots of free stuff out there. Some of the stuff is more geared towards cyber and some of it is geared more towards global risk. I've already said about understand the world around you, get on the podcasts. I mean, you know, long as I, I can't, I, I've got the time to read however many different newspapers each day now, but I would definitely get on the podcast scene. Look at, look at all the 
all the, most of the suppliers and resources that I mentioned earlier have a some kind of podcast going on. You know, so whilst Great Dynamics should be your first podcast that you listen to every week when it's out, of course, definitely Thank look you for at, that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely look at all the all the podcasts that I mentioned earlier, all the companies that I mentioned earlier that have a variety of free podcasts, and you can just catch up with the world around you also you know in the uk you have i think the telegraph and the times and the guardian and a few others have daily kind of two minute updates as well get akin to what's going on around you i mean a lot of these positions in the private sector require a degree you know many require a master's uh, degree as well i would say if you're in education look look to do an internship look to do some work experience somewhere because as you know i, I say to many folks when we're on career advice calls. It's about demonstrating what you can do, not just saying what you can do, but demonstrating the effect of what of your skills. And actually you can you can do that in academia, but you know, it's better if you can do that in a work environment, albeit an internship. If I I'd recommend going to the public sector. You got you know you can go straight to the private sector from academia. And many of the suppliers that I mentioned earlier, they they're analysts, you know, straight from you know King's College or UCL or or whatever university. However, as an exponent of it myself, I would advocate public sector experience, you know, look at, look at the law enforcement, right? Look at the police. You don't have to be a police officer, but there's in the UK, I know, especially in the US, there are, there are plenty of police civilian analyst jobs. They tend to be more targeted, more, more tactical and operational, but, you know, again, look at the military. In the UK, we have the army intelligence corps. You can join as a reserve or regular. The RAF have an intelligence branch too, and I believe the Navy do as well. All of which I believe you can join as a reservist or a regular. I'll give a shout out to, you know, I've got a lot of friends in three military intelligence battalion in London. That's out there. It's, it's got a website. I, I know that to be a, a really good battalion if, if you live down that way. But there's across the country, there's lots of reserve and regular units you can serve with. And if you can, you know, if you can serve with a regular unit for a few years, you'll end up doing a variety of, of really interesting roles, many of which will prepare you for, again, an equally large variety of private sector roles if and when you want to come out. And that's from everything from investigations to cyber to global risk and, and, and running, running a team. And, you know, if you think you want to join the military, but you've got maybe a, a stereotypical cliched view of it, and you've got to be super, super fit and you run around with a gun all the time. It's not always the case. Obviously you need a level of fitness and all the rest of it, but the military is probably not what you think of it, especially if you're going to, you know, police, security, intelligence signals, that kind of thing. It's not what you think. So I'd look at that. I'd also look at, yeah, you know, government. It's not just the three and four letter agencies that have an intelligence capability. You know, in the UK, civil service jobs, which is a website for, for government civil service workers. If you type in keyword intelligence, everyone from, you know, the Charities Commission to Revenue and Customs to Information Commissioner's Office, all these weird and wonderful government agencies that have intelligence capability because intelligence isn't kind of a, a really secret word anymore okay there are obviously agencies out there that do things that are very discreet but intelligence these days you shouldn't just see it as kind of top secret james bond stuff it's not you know and most agencies have a need to know stuff and not just to know information but have that information analyzed by professional and then curated in a way which makes it relevant and actionable for that agency and that's essentially what intelligence is whether that's business intelligence for a council or a company or, you know, it's a government agency. So look at government as well. 
And the final thing I'd say is don't be put off by location. And this is very quickly becoming into a recruitment call, but a recruitment podcast, but don't, don't be put off by location because whilst there are obviously agencies in which you need to be in the office, either because it's their company policy or because of can operational security reasons, many, many companies and many organizations, even the public sector now off remote, you know, or semi-remote hybrid working. So look at all of those and apply to all of them. Because if you just apply, you know, if you apply the military, it doesn't come off. You've wasted a year and you've not, you know, so apply for all of them at the same time. Get a police application in, look at the private sector, apply for the military if you want to, look at the government work. Nobody's going to, you know, you're not going to be black marked for applying. It's a bit of work, but just apply to everything. And as I said, in the, in the meantime, make sure you have an interest in the world that you're living in. Get technologically aware. I'd say, even if it doesn't push your buttons, get aware of the, of what's going on in IT and in cyber. And again, there's many podcasts out there. The CyberWise is a really good one for lay people. And, and, and yeah, make sure you keep up with, with, with world events and, and what's going on and not just, not just broadcast media, but long form discussions by experts in the field as to what is going on. It's a lot there, Ahmed, but hopefully your listeners can oh, pass that out. <laughs> I think the last thing I wanted to really ask you, and, and, and uh, again, this is becoming an interesting feature because it's valuable for me. So I think it's definitely valuable for the people listening. What are you, you said you don't have much time to read, but what are you reading, watching, listening to? You mentioned a bunch of stuff already, but. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, right. So. In terms of listening, I'll not mention the podcast that podcasts that are owned by suppliers, because that'd probably be a little bit unfair, but kind of the, the podcasts that I listen to, not all regularly, because sometimes there's topics there that, that don't really interest me as much or that I don't think are directly relevant, but the Economist Intelligence podcast, Lucy, okay, R-U-S-I, do a load of podcasts that are re really good. I'm listening to Bridge in the Oceans at the minute. A lot of really good stuff on Southeast Asia. Obviously, my, my company's got a multinational. We've got equities in China looking at that the whole Taiwan piece. And then the, in, in the UK, the Times do some good podcasts, stories of our times. There's a podcast called Conflicted, which, which, which has got some really great stuff on. So, you know, I think the latest podcast is on the Algerian civil war but there's there's stuff on kind of iraq iran afghanistan war on the rocks be listening to as well that again just search for that in your your podcast app really useful i found that very useful indeed and in terms of if you want to if you need to keep abreast of ukraine i'd say you know the telegraph do a really good podcast on that as well if you know technology wise i would say the cyberwire is a really good way to get into that i at one point a couple of years ago i thought i might be going into a cyber role a cyber threat intelligence role i've got limited cyber experience but i've, I've done some more technical stuff in the intelligence world and, and there is a crossover between that kind of layperson intelligence expertise piece and and some cyber jobs so to get into it, I, I listened to the Cyberwire podcast. That's, that's, that's really great. And okay, in terms of the suppliers, you know, there's Multigo, for example, which is one of the network analysis tools that I mentioned. They have a podcast as well, and that's really quite good for tools, tips, and tricks. And I'd say the Ozint Curious podcast is quite good for the more technical side of Ozint, looking at tools and, and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, in the UK as well, 
We have the Financial Times that do a great weekly kind of global affairs podcast called the Rackman Review, where they do a 30 minute insight piece. There's so many out there. Oh, and Jane's as well. So there's so many out there and hopefully have not disadvantaged one by mentioning the other. In terms of reading, well, I'm currently, uh, I try not to have too many going at once, but I get a bit bored as well. So I'm reading currently Stanley McChrystal's book called Risk, a user guide. I've just seen on my, I've, I've also recently bought H. Harvick Master Battlegrounds just because I've read a review on it. It sounded really, really quite intriguing. And then I'm reading some of the bits and bobs on ISIS as well. And I I started rereading Ghost Wars to try and make sense of the Afghanistan. I've read it twice already, but it's such a good book. And, you know, I, I was found myself recently thinking about Afghanistan, actually, on Very the year, year anniversary. Yep. So I remember, and this is a bit of a segue, but when people used to come into my office doing kind of those days where we thought things might start to go wrong, people would say, how do I know what will happen next? I said, well, just read Ghost Wars and speed up the timeline a little bit. So I'm taking a bit of my own advice and rereading that. So there's a lot there, but, you know, if your listeners subscribe to some of those podcasts and maybe get some of those books, hopefully have provided something of interest. Absolutely. And I would add to what you just said on like Master's book, his podcast that he did with Joe Rogan was excellent. I think it was like three and a half hours, maybe four hours that they had a conversation. And yeah, really good. I, I agree. And and listen, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of long form stuff on YouTube now, loads of it. And of, often, I mean, we smash social media, but you know, you might get clips of it on social media, Ex explore the internet. There's lots of long form discussions or videos of, you know, folks giving lengthy interviews, you know, so I saw. I think he was a few years old now, but Sir John Sauce, he's the ex-head of Secret Intelligence Service in the UK. He give, I think he was at, I think it's the World Economic Forum or, or some kind of forum, but he's just giving a half hour chat on something. So, you know, use the internet as well. And if you encounter somebody in a podcast, you know, a guest that intrigues you, just go on the, I'm, I'm telling young people how to use the internet. That's the wrong way around. But <laughs> ju ju just, it, it's just explore. And it's okay if it's not a book, you know, because... Oh. My generation's Absolutely. a bit biased. You must be reading a book, but actually, no. Some of us, some of us are audiovisual learners. So, a point or a, a thesis or an issue might sit better by listening to it. And, and also, I would say, you know, if you're deep diving into a topic, I find listening and reading about it, you know, from several different viewpoints on several different mediums, really helps me understand. So, for example, if you're looking at China Taiwan. De definitely look into not only Western mainstream news outlets, look at academics, look at, try to look at it from different viewpoints as well. So those who are neutral or more kind of pivoting towards China, I'd just pick an example there out of the blue, kind of out of the hat, right? but do take time if you're deep diving to appreciate all sides of not necessarily an argument, but all perspectives of the issue and on lots of different mediums, because, well, that personally helps me anyway. Maybe your listeners have got better concentration skills than me, but that certainly, that certainly helps me understand an issue. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. There's a lot there and I think it will take you guys a lot of time to, to get through all of that, but some really, really great sources. Thank you so much. I think this is probably for somebody who wants to become an analyst or wants to join the intelligence profession. It's probably the most informative podcast I've done so far. So thank you so much for that. Gareth, where can people find you if you want to be found? So listen, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find Gareth Westwood. I'm, you know, you can freely contact me on, 
on there and and ask me whatever you need. I've, I've got quite a few connections now, ranging from very you know very experienced folks to to, to graduates that want a want a leg up in terms of yeah, the CVs and resumes. So I'm I'm quite quite welcoming, and I, I think I'm almost certain you can find me on there publicly, Ahmed. So LinkedIn's the best place. I'm not on Twitter yet, actually. I probably should be. You should be because there's some. You should be. Yeah. There's some really good folks on Twitter that you can follow, actually. So, so I think I might make that jump. I'm of course on Facebook, but no, yeah, I'm not telling my name on that because uh, that's <laughs> that's my family and friends. But listen, <laughs> contact me on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to you if you found the podcast useful, and if you've got any comments or criticisms or questions as well on anything we've talked about, just get in touch. I'll, I'll I always try to make time to communicate, advance my network and help people. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me on to allow me to do that. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining. It was really a pleasure and I've, I've learned myself a lot and, and I will add your LinkedIn to the show notes. So for people who want to find you, wherever you listen to the podcast, you, you'll be able to find Garrett. And, and I have to say, you're probably one of the most useful people to follow on LinkedIn when it comes to like advice and, and tips and tricks. And so I can definitely say that knowing what I know about you. So again, thank you so much. And it was really a pleasure and really fun learning more about you. Akhmed, it was a real pleasure being on the, on the pod. And yeah, please let's keep in touch with each other and to listeners out there. I look forward to, I look forward to hearing from you and, and all the very best of luck wherever you are in your career at the minute. Thank you, uh, guys. Find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, you can find it also on our website, greatdynamics.com forward slash podcast. And please, you know, let us know what you think and not just in this episode, but in general and uh, give us feedback and it helps us a lot. And I see you guys next week. Thank you.